UFOs, microwave attacks, and the long con. This week, Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint and his daughter Emily Faint join me so we can get really pessimistic about the impending threats to the U.S. So we tried to lighten the mood by having Emily on in the first place and then have her talk about what it was like to be raised as a military child. And I don't think I ever actually get around to saying why we wanted to have her on on this particular episode. But the reason is because April was the official month of the military child, and uh, we pretty much missed it. Uh, So this episode was recorded about 10 days ago. So if you're listening to it now, we recorded this actually on May 2nd. So hopefully nothing we talk about gets overtaken by events. Hopefully it won't. But also we missed the month of the military child anyway, because it was 10 days ago and it was still in May. We didn't miss it by much, but we did miss it. So we wanted to have Emily on and talk about her experiences growing up as a military child, which I think is really interesting. But I totally bum her out about the future of the U.S. And because that isn't bad enough, I also asked her to become an instant expert on Iranian real politic and pulsating sonic attacks. And of course, UFOs, which let's be honest, any 17-year-old really should be. So this episode is your full 100% FDA recommended daily allowance of pessimism, cynicism, and the upside of playing mixed gender football. So it's got everything. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this episode of the Weekly Havoc, a roundtable discussion of the week's events by the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Except this week, when to celebrate Month of the Military Child, which I'm really tempted to gobble up and say Military Child of the Month instead, and and really cock that up, but it's Month of the Military Child, we're inviting Emily Faint onto the show. Emily is a junior at O'Neill High School in Highland Falls, New York. She is an accomplished pianist and singer. She's also a competitive swimmer and played one year of full contact football in a mixed gender recreational league. She is a part-time employee of Legoland, and she aspires to follow in the footsteps of both her mother and her father and join the Army after college. Right now, her top three school choices are West Point, Juilliard, and the University of Alabama. In that order, Emily? Yeah, just about. Okay, fair enough. Listen, thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm super excited to be here. No, totally. And you almost have as many bullet points as your dad, uh, which is awesome because you're not even out of high school yet. So Charlie Faint, as everyone that listens to the show on a regular basis knows, is an active duty Army intelligence officer, deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. Previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, Korea, three master's degrees, degrees, one from Yale, currently a PhD candidate, executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, and owner of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show, and I especially appreciate you having Emily. This ought to be very interesting. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. We got a lot of stuff to pack into this episode, like I was saying before we started recording. Um, This week is somewhat intimidating for me just because of the amount of information I want to do justice to in a relatively constrained uh, time. So we're, we're going to try to shoehorn as much as we can in here. 
So we want to get into Emily's military child experience. We want to talk about that. And there's a lot of rich subject matter there. I will tell you right now, Emily, we're not going to be able to do it justice. We're going to, we're going to do as much as we can to fit that in throughout all this. Cause, but I want to get to, I want to start off with all this week's subjects because it's rich stuff. And hopefully you've nerded out even more than I have on this. Um, cause we, there's so much rich material to talk about here. So this week's subject, UFOs, microwave attacks, and the long con. So let me do a little bit of level setting and then we can dive into this. First, we're recording this. If you're listening to this now, you're hearing us about 10 days or a week to 10 days before you're actually, uh, we're recording this a week, a week to 10 days before you're actually hearing it. So hopefully everything we say will not be overtaken by events by the time you hear it. I don't think it will. Um, I hope not. But if it is, to some degree, this should give you background context anyway. So why are we talking about UFOs, microwave attacks, and a long con this week? This is my editor- brief editorial on this to kind of set the stage. And Charlie and Emily can agree or disagree as much as they want, as they see fit. Um when I open this up, but I, for my part, I want to talk about this because look, everyone knows the U S right now has a lot of issues. We are in a widely reported turmoil. Everybody's gnashing teeth and rending garments over what the U S is going to do, what, what we're doing to ourselves. We are, I think it's safe to say a wash in myopia and solipsism. I think much of the left it's safe to categorize is consumed with skin color and genitalia and justifying violence on those causes' behalf. And much of the right is consumed with stop the steal, cult of Trump, justifying violence on that behalf. So for my money, for where I stand right now, I don't think we're being a serious country right now. I think these are mostly, if not entirely, manufactured outrages. I think these are unforced errors. I think these are self-inflicted wounds. I don't think any of them are necessary for us to go through. And I think as a country... It is an indication that we are so privileged, we are so awash in in luxury that we can have these fantastical outrages because we don't really know or remember what real problems look like. So why are we getting into the subjects we're getting into today? Because I this might be an indicator that we are about to relearn what real problems look like. What real problems am I talking about? Briefly, we have new newly reported, not they're not new, they're from two years ago, but newly reported UFO sightings. Doesn't mean it's necessarily aliens, although it could be. Um, it might be a foreign actor doing something. And these are not UFO sightings happening in the middle of you know New Hampshire in a, in a farm or something like that. This is stuff, these are this is military footage that has triggered um the Senate uh, Committee on Intelligence uh, Marco Rubio, it triggered Harry Reid. It made a lot of important people in government say, you know something, in June of this year, in a month or so, we're going to have to release a um, report on UFOs and on what we know, where the government stands with them, what we can identify, what we can't, what we think the causes of this phenomena are. So this is getting serious. In addition, equally if not more alarming, we have sonic attacks caused by microwave energy. We saw this in 2016 in Cuba. We've seen it at our embassies and consulates in China, in Russia, in London, and now in Washington, D.C., specifically 
to a member of the National Security Council walking on the ellipse, which is the oval lawn on the south side of the White House. So right in our breadbasket, we're getting these sonic attacks. What is a sonic attack? Well, it's something it's, it, the best we can figure out it's directed energy that leads to the target having multiple complaints could be ear popping, vertigo, pounding headaches, nausea. Um, sometimes it's accompanied by a piercing directional noise. Um, this has been studied by the national Academy of sciences. Um, so we do believe it's directed pulsed radio frequency energy. In other words, a lot of bad juju that's that we're seeing an increase of, and we need to start taking seriously because this is, it's happening even in DC. And then lastly, and not leastly, um, we are in the middle of negotiations with Iran about restarting the Iranian nuclear deal. This is called JCPOA. And we get this leaked audio tape from Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif, which basically uh, outlines that he, as the lead negotiator in many of our diplomatic dealings with Iran, essentially has no power and is really just a mouthpiece for the IRGC, um, the elite uh, Iranian Republican Guard Corps. And essentially negotiating with him nets us nothing because all policy is still going to go through um, the Ayatollah and through the IRGC and debate negotiating with him is, is fruitless and pointless as well as many other lessons. So that's what we have. Charlie, let me start with you thoughts, feelings, reactions. What do we need to focus on first? Uh, What's your overall take on all of this? So the one thing that kept popping up, when you were talking, Chris, in my mind is uncertainty. We're so so much uncertainty going on in the world. We don't know what's what's going to go on with Iran, what their real intentions are, who we need to be negotiating with. We don't know what's going on with these UFOs, which I suspect are probably, as you alluded to, just probably drones or aircraft from another power, not necessarily space aliens, although who knows. And then with, with the Havana syndrome, with this directed energy, that's pretty scary. And the fact that it's not only taking place in Russia, in China, in Havana, places where we expect our diplomats and, and spies to be attacked like this happening in our own backyard. And people do very dangerous things and they're very unpredictable when there's uncertainty. Uncertainty leads to fear. Fear can lead to violence. So on top of everything else we have going on, we have three things that you just mentioned right now that, are, that generate a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, potentially a lot of chaos for us, Chris. Emily, before I get to you, I want to stay with Charlie for one follow-up on this. Um, which one concerns you the most? Right now, it's the UFO drone thing. So I, I suspect we'll find that most of the stuff is coming from our adversaries, Iran, China, North Korea, Russia, the, the usual suspects. I think that's where we're going to find this. And I remember when I was out in U.S. Army Pacific in Hawaii, the daily reports that we get, not even classified reports, I'm talking open source in the news about UAVs. Uh, UFOs, buzzing our warships, interfering with our operations, flying over our bases. Some of these were hobbyists, but some of them were rather sophisticated and we have no idea what they're doing. And I'm I'm scared. I, I'm concerned. I'm not scared because I know we'll deal, deal with it. I'm concerned about our ability to react to mass drone strikes, to micro drones, to swarming, to all these things that we're kind of, the, we're kind of getting behind on. And I'm thinking about the, the terrorists in Syria who were able to rig up their little quadcopter to, to drop a 40 millimeter grenade on our guys. That's, that's very simple. 
Now, what's going to happen when there's some state power behind it and they, they can do something like knock out our power grid? So I'm way more worried about that than I am right now about directed energy beams affecting onesies and twosies or or about what Iran's going to do because Iran's always going to be a bad actor. Um, just to set you up, Emily, let me let me just briefly recap again specifically what it is that's triggered this UFO stuff. So it was in July 2019 that uh, – Navy Chief of Naval Operations revealed they haven't that that a bunch of drones had swarmed the USS Russell. These three pyramid-shaped UFOs that were hovering over that warship, and uh, at one point it hovered about seven hundred feet over the tail of the USS Russell. Um, and they tracked the ship. They sometimes matched it speed for speed. We have an eighteen-second video that's been, uh, I think it was leaked actually, but the government has admitted that it's real. And uh, the captures that shows the three pyramid-shaped UFOs, um, and they have names like the metallic blimp, the sphere. They all look slightly different. So that's kind of what precipitated all this revived interest in UFOs, uh, especially um, among the government officials, and uh, seems to have triggered this report that will be coming out in June. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the UFO piece. Emily, what are your thoughts and feelings? I don't have too much to add to this, what my father said. It's pretty much the same. I'm not as concerned about the alien portion of UFOs. I don't think aliens, from a a conspiracy theory side, I don't think they are most likely to be a thing. But the fact that it could be adversaries from China or Iran or from maybe even North Korea does um, frighten me in in a little bit. And the, what we were talking about with the leaks to Iran and reentering the nuclear deal, I think it's also a little scary having someone that's so close to our allies in Israel and then even just closer to us and the microwave attacks just right on our doorstep, which could be linked to the UFO sightings. Maybe the UFOs are citing places where they can attack people with the microwaves. And it's just, it's a scary Interesting. thought. Interesting. Uh, it's all, it's all one line of effort and multiple, uh, multiple avenues in one line of effort. Uh, so what do you think about, let me see, when we talk about the UFOs, um, I, I agree. I think we're going to have a couple of hurdles for the American public to kind of get on board with uh, any kind of alien conspiracy theory. But when we look at the JCPOA, when we look at Iran, um, let's talk through that a little bit. You referred to the Israeli leak. Um, I'll let you spill the beans on that uh, and, and, and kind of set the, the stage for what we know about the leak and, and what Zarif had to say and where that came from. So this is new news, but it happened a while ago. Um, the Iranian foreign minister, Zarif, was caught on a mic saying that former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry told me, told him, that Israel had launched more than 200 attacks on Iranian forces in Syria. And this is now public news because I think it was Benjamin Netanyahu, the president, was caught on a live mic talking about airstrikes on Iranian forces in Israel. So the world knows about this. However, it is concerning that this being an allegation, not nothing is confirmed, but it is concerning that even an allegation was brought up that a Secretary of State of the United States was informing a potentially hostile country about 
the goings on of our allies. Yeah, it, it's an interesting situation. I, I, I could take this in a, I have different feelings about it. I think one of the, probably the biggest um, factor in this is when exactly he told Zarif, and we don't have any information on that. If he told Zarif before it was public knowledge, um, that would obviously be more concerning than if he told him after it had hit the papers. We have to believe that probably it was before this was public knowledge only because Zarif was surprised by the information and said he, and and I think it's important to note that the leak really wasn't about John Kerry. Um, Zarif clearly was not targeting him. He was really um, bitching and moaning about the IRGC that uh, they didn't share information with him, that they were hanging him out to dry on a lot of things that he'd make promises in the West and that the IRGC had no intentions of following through on. So this was really an internal politics thing about Iran and the and John Kerry's role in it was just kind of a a, a by the way that Zarif threw out there because um, he said you know I, I my American counterpart is more a more reliable source of information for me than the IRGC is so I think it it speaks to Zarif's credibility I guess on this that it seems like this was um, uh, potentially classified information at the time uh, John Kerry shared that with him. I also, though, want to underscore, I look, I, I've never carried much brief for John Kerry. I think he's a bit of a pompous ass, um, and I don't weep for whatever punishment he has coming his way if it's deserved. But I also think it's selling ourselves t- short to look at that as the lead takeaway from this leak. I think there's a lot of real insight that goes well beyond American internal politics that we need to look at with this. Charlie, what do you think? What were your takeaways from that? Mine was very similar to what you were saying. So uh, setting aside the the Secretary Kerry part, and the, the timing does matter because I'm a little confused on the timeline myself, but it appears that he was having these conversations at a, at a time when he was not in government. I don't know if that's accurate or not. But if, right. yeah. if, if he was having this conversation when he was not in government two weeks before the election, there are, are certain laws and, and presidents and things that people get upset about when folks start interfering in in, in uh, international relations when it's not their job to interfere in international relations. But setting that aside, it was fascinating to me to read about how much in control Zarif claims IRGC coup force and, and Suleimani, who's deceased now, thanks to us, it, how much impact he had internally. The world knew externally what impact he was running terrorist organizations, stuff like that. And that's why he got a bomb dropped on him. But internally, it really amazed me that he's just off doing his own thing. And the guy who's kind of charged with foreign affairs for the country is is complaining that he doesn't have any power. So you, you mentioned the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, who are we negotiating with? Why are we wasting our time negotiating with Zarif if he's not the guy that can make this happen? So that was what jumped out to me, Chris. What did, what did Churchill say? Don't talk to the monkey when the organ grinder's in the room, right? Right. And, and this is what we're dealing with is that Zarif appears to be a a, a, a a propaganda tool just to kind of be a shiny object that the West can can believe it's doing some some good with some diplomacy with when in fact or, or he's completely irrelevant to what Iran itself does. And what do you think? How how serious is this? How serious is that um, bait and switch that Iran is playing with here? I don't know too much about this, but I think it could be potentially dangerous. Like. 
what Dad was talking about with if Zarif had been told this before he was in office, then that could really play with the politics within Iran, and that could be potentially volatile for us in Israel. Sure. Sure. I think also another takeaway that I saw was, you know, there was a lot of um, sternum drang when we killed Soleimani. A, a lot of people, a lot of um, blue check mark Twitter was up in arms. Oh, this is going to backfire on us. All we've done is is piss off Iran just to kill one guy. Um, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. This is uh, Trump's ego. And I certainly have not been a defender of Trump, but I think you know, reasonable minds can look at this and go, yeah, this was killing Soleimani was a great move. And clearly, I think Zarif at one point said, I'm trying to get the exact quote, but I think he said uh, that essentially, he says, by assassinating Soleimani in Iraq, the United States delivered a major blow to Iran, more damaging than if it had wiped out an entire city in an attack. That's a pretty good confirmation uh, that, that um, hey, we were we were right in our assessment of how what a threat Suleimani was, and it's a damn good thing we we killed him because who knows how much we've set Iran back. Yeah, I was shocked, Chris, when that happened because he has been acting with impunity for so many years. And I imagine, I have no way of knowing this because he wasn't one of our targets. I imagine he was on a no-strike list for a long time because what we didn't want is to kill him and have all the the organizations he was sponsoring, Hezbollah, uh, uh, Iraq, uh, could, Iraq uh, terrorist groups, whatever, Shiite militias, popping up and attacking our interests all over the world. So when I heard that we we killed him, I was amazed and very grateful because yeah. he was one of the primary drivers that like we talked about before about, about those uh, copper-faced um, IEDs that were so effective against us in Iraq. So and, and you just got to you just got to admire the set on that guy. He landed at Baghdad International that we controlled. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, the Americans aren't going to do anything. And then we dropped a bomb on him and killed him. That sent a message all over the world. Maybe we don't mess with the Americans right now. You know, I remember in the 80s, uh, you know, the Soviets were one of the lines that I think the uh, American political left used about Reagan is that the Soviets uh, would only do business with him because they thought he was crazy. He was the crazy cowboy and you didn't know what he was going to do. I I think that's slanderous and and wildly overblown because Reagan had a very clear ideological point of view that had a – an internal logic of its own that, that really did make sense. I found Trump to be completely ad hoc and, and basically flying by the seat of his pants. That said, I I think the criticism of Reagan is much more fitting for Trump where it's like, Hey, he's crazy. We don't know what he's going to do. And as a result, the bad actors couldn't anticipate his mood and therefore couldn't anticipate his moves. And I think, uh, the Suleimani, uh, assassination was a prime, uh, a prime example of that and a prime indicator to them that they needed to be really leery about Trump because you just never knew what was going to set him off. Yeah, we got that. And also the, the Iranians response was so weak. They fired a bunch of missiles at us. They, they let us know in advance that missiles didn't kill anybody. They did very little damage. Their, their militias and proxy forces all over the world didn't rise up and start carrying out attacks. And I thought about that. I was, as I was reading the articles related to this before the show Maybe one of the reasons why there weren't more widespread attacks is secretly a number of people in power in Iran were kind of glad to see this guy go. It's like, hey, we got to do something. But on the other hand, if I'm Zarif, I got to thank good riddance. Thank you, America. Death to America, but thank you for killing Suleimani also. 
Yeah, I think there's something to be said that it, I, I, one thing that always comes to my mind is when the the Berlin Wall fell, and we have these accounts of KGB officers um, talking to their CIA counterparts, and everybody could kind of, if not exchange notes, at least provide a lot of atmospherics about what everybody was doing during the Cold War. And I know that many CIA officers wrote that they were stunned that the KGB's internal politics were as much, if not more, toxic, uh, petty, uh, you know, uh, uh, ego-driven as the United States' was. That basically, at the end of the day, we're all human beings and everybody's got their own internal uh, uh, logic to what they do and internal reasons for doing what they do. And, and the petty politics is not limited to us. And in that respect, I think that's right. As Suleimani rose, I'm sure he had plenty of haters and detractors who had to be careful because, you know, Suleimani could get rid of them as well uh, with the political winds at his back that he had. But I think there's, um, I think we're getting real insight in this leak into the many factions and the many grievances, both petty and significant, that uh, Iran is rife with. Yeah, and I also think that killing Soleimani was was one more piece in the puzzle of peace starting to break out between Israel and a lot of the Gulf states, because that guy was mm. so influential. Everyone is so worried about Iran. Then you have then President Trump making this bold move against Iran, against the guy who's most responsible for the the proxies that everyone's so scared of. And maybe those Gulf states are like, you know what? I want to make money. I want to make friends with Israel. The United States is standing up to Iran. Let's do this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I think, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I hope that's what we take away from all this. I know it's easy for for America, as I said, being so solipsistic for us to make domestic political points off this. And that's an understandable second order effect of, of this leak. But I think there's there's real lessons to be learned about um, Iran from here. And I, I hope we take those to heart. Yeah, I, re- I remember kind of holding my breath when this this happened. You know, I, I did seven tours of Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't want to go back to that part of the world anymore. And then when we killed Soleimani, I'm like, well, maybe I need to break out my old desert gear because it looks right. like this might be it. And then it wasn't. And uh, I mean, a lot of people uh, were, were worrying about here comes World War Three. They're making those accusations against President Trump. But like uh, like North Korea, Iran uh, sh- showed that that a lot of times uh, the realist world perspective might makes right. And if you're willing to, to do stuff like that, people will think twice before they give you a hard time. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to ask you an unfair question. Um, give me your best speculation. Why do you think that this audio tape leaked? Why do you think someone in Iran leaked it to the world? Is there any, any possible rationale you could think of? Hmm. It's an unfair question. Um, I, I preface it with that because I, I think there's so many different ways, and 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 I'm, I'm asking you to, you know, act like an expert on something that uh, you know none of us would claim to be an expert on. But if uh, if did any thought cross your mind about why that could be or what that could be about? It could be a power play to try and get um, Americans to start looking at each other, pointing fingers, get us distracted from what really matters. That could be something. It could also be, um, uh, sorry, I don't know what else it could also be. No, no, It could just be uh, blackmail in the form of just trying to get everybody to not play nice with each other. 
Yeah, that I, I, I think your second, just again, I'm not an expert either. So uh, I'm, I'm talking out of my ass here, but I, I, I think your second point is, is I, I, I would agree with that. I think this is all about Iranian internal politics. I think it's worth saying that there's an election coming up in Iran and to discredit um, Zarif, I think would be to a lot of people's benefit. And a tape like this that has him bad-mouthing Soleimani, I think, could potentially pay dividends. Charlie, what do you think? Yeah, I was not in my head in agreement when Emily was talking. It's kind of high school politics. So you got this you got this well-renowned uh, martyr, Soleimani, now that all Iran claims to love. Even if they didn't like him before, they didn't like it. The Americans killed him. So you got this martyr that's being bad-mouthed by this politician who apparently doesn't have any power anyway. So why do we keep this guy around? And if we can embarrass America while we embarrass our domestic political, why wouldn't you release a, a tape like this? I think it was brilliant on the part of whoever did it. I agree. I read one um, explanation that I'll just throw out there because it's a fun little cloak and dagger aspect that that might be in play where Iran, I I, I don't remember the exact details, so I'm, I'm going to try to do this from memory, but it was a few years ago, there was an Iranian dissident, a, a government uh, official who Iran, let's call it excommunicated and, and basically was thrown out of Iranian polite society. He fled to the West where he immediately took over a chair in some American university from which he was then able to critique America. And uh, this article written by Iranian dissidents, and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes so people know I'm just not making this up out of whole cloth. Um, but this Iranian uh, expert, uh, who is a dissident to the government, said that she believed that Zarif was this was could be a similar ploy that you uh, discredit him in his own country, so the West embraces him, and then he goes to work in the West, but and now with supposedly valid bona fides, so the West listens to him, and then he can turn his criticisms on the West, and uh, we've kind of you know let a propagandist into our midst under false pretenses. I, you know, I, I think we can play that game all day long. Who knows how much or how little that comes into play, but I thought it was an interesting uh, take. Oh, I love that take. Uh, I, but I also think it's equally likely this dude's going to end up getting murdered in his own country, but I can totally see that those types of countries play that type of long game like that. The yeah. Russians were notorious for it of sending that, that deep mole into, and to start causing problems. But uh, Zarif, I don't think would uh, I don't think that he would be accepted the way that a, a, an academic dissident would. This guy has probably got blood on his hands of his own, and uh, he, you don't get to that position inside Iran without being super dirty. So I think unless he fully turns and we get him as like a CIA asset or something like that, I don't think he'd find many open arms here in the states. At least I hope he wouldn't. I, I hope he wouldn't either. But then uh, you know I always go back to Columbia University in was it two thousand seven letting Ahmadinejad come give a speech and, and refusing to, you know, making sure they gave him a nice warm platform. And he was feeded at several, uh, you know, intellectual public intellectuals events. And, and it seemed like everyone, I, I think Americans can sometimes be so naive on foreign policy that they think, Oh, well he hates Bush. So he must be all right. Um, that we, we look at everything through that local lens. I remember when that happened and I remember him, I, I, I kind of read up the, read up on the, his show notes and, and his speech and everything. 
and they actually let him do some Q&A, which I thought was interesting. And then he, he was explaining to how there are no gays in Iran. <laughs> I was like, what? Dude. So it just kind of it, it's a very interesting eye opening experience, I hope, for a lot of Americans who who want to throw stones at America and sometimes just justifiably so, but without understanding that we still got the best form of government in the best country in the world, especially when you compare it to regimes like China, North Korea, and Iran. If you only know the history of one country, you don't know the history of any country. Yeah. And I think a lot of Americans look at America and we can critique ourselves all day long and that's all well and good, but, um, you know, we're, we're, we're as evil as can be, but compared to whom? You know, I mean, you have to look and go, okay, who's doing better? And I think looking at our geopolitical enemies and realizing that we are not simply flip sides of the same coin, but there is actually substantive differences between us would definitely go a long way. I want to move to the, uh, to the microwave attacks. So, uh, to me, I agree with both of your assessments. I'm going to call it the faint assessment, although that's going to be confusing probably to people that are hearing that. But the faint assessment that the UFOs are probably the most uh, uh, significant threat of the three that we're talking about. But there's no two ways about it. I think these sonic attacks might be the creepiest of all because of how they can be targeted and because they are, it seems like, going after our intelligence personnel in ways that we can't respond to or protect even in D.C., yeah, Chris, I, this this type of capability is nothing new. I, I'm, I'm sure all three of us will remember several years back, the United States was experimenting with these types of weapons as crowd control, uh, microwaving people, uh, and it causes um, it causes anything from your skin to be uncomfortable to nausea to all kind of, to panic attacks, all kind of things. But this is this is very interesting because it seems like it is targeted and it is focused and it is very effective. When Emily and I were doing research on this beforehand, it's, you know, it's causing Parkinson's disease, which is yeah. a terrible, incurable thing to happen to these guys um, just for kind of going about their government's business. And it's, it makes me think of kind of it's like a cyber attack, but on people. It's untraceable. Yeah. Yeah. No one knows what's going on and no one knows how to protect against it. And I mean, Emily, what do you think? I mean, I know it's kind of like something out of a movie, but I mean, what's your what's your creep factor on this? How, how much does this creep you out? On a scale of one to 10, it's an 11. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, do we, do we ever, it, it, I think what shocks me is, is that we never considered, I mean, we're in an age where it seems like things we've never considered are actually coming around uh, into existence, uh, whether it's on the domestic political scene or in the culture, or in this case, in, in matters of, of national security. Intelligence was supposed to be a gentleman's game. And uh, a few years ago, Charlie, I'm sure you remember the uh, Russians started practicing exquisite thuggery on our intelligence uh, people. There was uh, published reports that Russians actually broke into chief of station's apartment in Paris and uh, or the been at the embassy. I don't think it was at the embassy. I think it was a, a offsite apartment. And they literally defecated on his pillow just to show him they could do that. Uh, another uh, American asset was our uh, uh, intelligence agent was walking into the embassy and or consulate wherever in St. Petersburg and was physically attacked by the Russian police that were out there just to show that they knew who our intelligence personnel were and they would be physically intimidated. Now we have this, which has the added benefit of plausible non uh, plausible deniability. 
Uh, it's a freaky time to be an intelligence collector in the United States. No, Charlie? Yeah, so it's it's always interesting to be in, in intel. Um, but right now, these are the types of things that we typically don't do to other people in other countries. Like we we won't use directed energy beams on uh, foreign pilots, for example. The Chinese have no such compunction about it because we're worried about blinding them. They're the high, high-powered lasers and things like that. Uh, but our adversaries have no such compunction. And it, it feels a lot of times like people's hands are tied when people – and we could probably figure out who's doing this to us. It, it, now that we're aware of it, we'll probably start seeing indicators and start narrowing it down who it is. But we probably already know. But we won't do the same thing back to them. But I, I hope we can make it so we put a price tag on these types of things to get get our diplomats and our our spies out of this type of harm's way. Because if they're doing it to them, it's only a matter of time before they, they're doing it to the rest of us. And you see this kind of same kind of thing on a mass scale. Can you imagine uh, some type of directed energy weapon turned on, on Times Square? No one knows it got affected. And then two months later, everyone's got Parkinson's. That's that's terrifying. It's it's incredibly terrifying. What I, I'm, I'm going to throw this out here. I don't like to fear monger or speculate unnecessarily, but I'm going to throw out a scenario that I think is just so plausible. I, don't, I, I believe anybody that's capable of these kind of attacks would have already thought of this. But you can use those same powers, that same directed energy against highly visible influencers in the United States. If I'm just hypoth- uh, you know, being uh, hypothetical, so I'm going to throw out some uh, theoretical possibilities. But let's say you wanted to target Tucker Carlson and you said, hey, stop talking about this or we're going to be microwaving you, or let's give Tucker Carlson headaches for a couple of weeks, or Anderson Cooper, or Don Lemon, or anybody with a platform uh, that's significant. It's a great way, because of the plausible deniability involved, it's a great way to intimidate somebody and make them incredibly neurotic and fearful of um, crossing the wrong people. And I'm going to couple this just as, before I let you guys comment on that about with something that I've been tracking for years, the amount of local small town uh, and even sometimes mid-major police departments that have been targeted by cyber hackers where they hack and uh, dox and leak um, the police uh, policemen's uh, personal identifying information to bad guys or to on the dark web or um, to cartels. And this has been going on. I'll link to a bunch of the stuff uh, of the stories that I've seen over the years in the show notes. But that again is it's a great tool of intimidation. And by the time we do forensics and figure out who's behind it, a lot of people are like, Hey man, I didn't sign up for this. I I was thinking I was, you know, going to carry a gun and, you know, catch a couple of drug dealers. And instead me and my family are being targeted by, um, you know, a foreign entity towards what end, or, you know, uh, it'll be a break glass in case of emergency scenario where at some point, if they ever want to leverage me, they can. I think stuff like that in this media driven age is a significant threat. Am I crazy? Am I unnecessarily fear mongering? Or is this, do you guys think this is a somewhat real possibility? No, I, I think it's absolutely a possibility because people will do anything to each other. We can see any manner of things domestically or internationally. I could see a situation where Antifa uses one of these drones and one of these directed energy weapons against the police. They're already targeting them with lasers or with cans of soup, all kind of things. 
Um, and again, after they're done with the police, they're going to turn on the rest of us. And when I when I was thinking about the three main things that we're talking about today, I could see a scenario that combines all three of them. If Iran put mounts directed energy weapons on drones and start using them against our sailors in, in the Gulf or at these bases, or if they set one up outside one of our one of our uh, fobs in, in Iran in Iraq. And just start bombarding it. Guys aren't going to know for days or weeks because I don't know that we have anything that can measure it. And certainly if we do, it's not fielded to Joe. Joe's not going to know he's being microwaved or yeah. directed energy pulse. And he comes home and he's got all kinds of diseases. And now the country yeah. has to take care of him. Yeah. And I, I just want to underscore, and before I turn to you, I, it worries me about the influencers. And that's the broad term I'm going to use here um, because we are in a media-driven age. Um, people's entire careers are based on the platforms that they build and their ability to disseminate information or as many cynics would say, misinformation uh, as the case might be. So it's one thing to target our soldiers overseas and I'm not trying to sell, you know, my brothers and sisters over there down the river, uh, but at least they're in the military and they know it's a life and death job and um, doesn't justify any of this stuff going against them. But uh, there can potentially be, you know, um, uh, some sort of shield that we can put up around them, but for your celebrity culture and for your media influencers, this is a threat that they are not equipped to deal with. They are not in this for the hardship they are in this and I'm not faulting them. They're in this for, for profit or for gain or for profile fame, what have you. Um, they didn't sign up to suddenly get their brain scrambled or to have Parkinson's prematurely. Um, so how trippy is that? How dangerous is that? What is that? I'm not trying to freak you out, but I mean, what do you think? You're going to be dealing with this long after Charlie and I are gone. What do you think? I think it's also probably about the same, if not more scary that our influencers could be targeted and harmed in the same way as our soldiers. Because, um, while I personally don't have a lot of social media, I only have Facebook, but most of my friends have so um, Snapchat, Instagram, and all those other social media outlets, and they have a lot of influencers on there. And as per name, influencers influence what you do with your life, what the society is, how to affect the culture. And if they're all starting to turn up with Parkinson's and heavy vertigo and they're not doing so hot, then that's going to freak a bunch of people out, especially the younger, more influential generation and that's just going to start a, a culture of panic and that's not something what we need in order to create a strong healthy country yeah i think that's a that's a fair assessment i think it's also i i i, I hate to be uh, lay, layer pessimism on top of pessimism but so to try to levy this with a little optimism i think a potential way out for us is to distinguish between foreign actors and ourselves. And I think this is why so many of our issues internally in the United States do come back to realizing we're all on the same team, making sure we're all on the same team, and whatever our disagreements, stopping it at the borders, you know, that it doesn't leak into uh, into leveraging technology like this against ourselves. And I, I'm thinking of things where, you know, if cancel culture started to be actioned by, hey, we can also turn microwave energy on this person because they just won't shut up about this thing I disagree with them on. That would be chaos. 
And I think there are people, at least if Twitter is any guide, and hopefully it isn't that much of an indicator, but if Twitter's any guide, there's a lot of people that have no compunction about saying, you're a transphobe, you're, I want liberal tears, I want, uh, you know, whatever your cause is. There's a lot of stuff that people are willing to hurt other Americans over. And the fact that that could be so easily leveraged by a foreign entity is dangerous. And I think it's important that we do distinguish, that we don't let ourselves be uh, pawns of foreign entities when this kind of technology may become more commonplace and these kind of threats could be more significant in the future. Yeah, I hope I hope that if we do find out this is going to be a widespread thing, that we got someone working on countermeasures for it. Uh, maybe maybe the tinfoil hat crowd was onto something, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I, I'm going to shut up on this because I'm bumming myself out uh, talking about it. Um, do you guys have a, have any last words on this? No, I'm going to be I'm going to be watching it with great interest. This the Iran situation and the UFO slash drone thing. So, Chris, you said it, the report comes out on on the in June. Maybe after that thing comes out, we need to revisit this topic and find out what's really going on. I, I think we absolutely do. I, 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 you know, I love this topic as let's call it clickbait. And I love it because cloak and dagger stuff is always cool. And these are huge stories. I mean, let's be clear. These are gigantic stories with massive implications. And I think we've covered a lot of the implications. Um, And we are instead, we're this past week, we've been talking about Biden's address to Congress, which I mean, he's the president. It's not an insignificant thing. And we're Americans. We want to know what the president is saying. Um, We're talking about, you know, but we're talking about all that stuff, but we're not focusing on, Hey, there's some significant um, foreign policy and national security implications in these stories. And they deserve a lot more coverage than I think they're getting. So I I do think these are things that are worth revisiting um, periodically. And hopefully, as you said, countermeasures are are coming and we don't have to bum ourselves out talking about it. Um, So on that note, let's go to something much more uh, positive Emily, let's talk about you. <laughs> oh God. Okay. <laughs> so listen, so uh, I promised myself I wasn't going to butcher this. Okay. Um, month of the military child. I swear I keep wanting to call it uh, military child of the month, which I think is just hilarious. Um, but uh, maybe we can do like a little frame picture of you and like have it hanging on a wall somewhere. If we ever get a permanent studio, it's like, this was our military child of the month. Um, anyway. Uh, so, what do you think? What's your number one takeaway? What do you think the average non-military affiliated family, person, family, whatever, should think about a military child? Is it a good way to grow up? Is it a bad way to grow up? Is a, What would you change? What would you fix? What are your thoughts and feelings on it? Um, I treat every day like it's an adventure and it's just, it's always been an adventure since I was born. Okay. I think it's a great way to grow up. I have moved one, two, three, six times. I I don't know. I lost track after the second. I have moved six times about. And every time I move, I gain more social skills. I learn how to make friends easily. And I get to change myself every time I move. I'm completely a different person from when I was here last time when I moved to Hawaii for two years. And I think it's a good way to be able to grow up because if you're stuck in a small town or even in the city for all your life, then the way that you grow up and the way that you shape yourself doesn't ever change. You don't get to see all these cool things. I get to meet lots of cool people because of dad's affiliation with the army. I get to go to cool places. Like how many people get to say that they got to spend two years in Hawaii. And I think it's just, it's a great way to, to grow up. 
So I should note for our audience that can't see her, Emily is now an 80-year-old Asian woman. She is significantly different from the last time she was she was here. But um, so my point point being though, I, I I know we talked about this offline um, when we all had dinner the the other week. But you talked about um, that. I, I think that's an important point. The opportunity if not to reinvent yourself, to not have baggage follow you around from place to place. That's talk to me a little bit more about that. I mean, um, the advantages of that and, and what that opportunity means for you psychologically. So when I was here last, I was stationed here for a very long time, five years, and I got really comfortable with being here and the people who I was But at the same time, I feel like because I was here for so long and I hadn't moved, I didn't have that refresh button that I really needed. And so I started Mm. to like move towards things that may not have been healthy for, um, how old was I? Like a 13 year old, 13, 14 year old at the time. Um, Heroin, crack, that kind of thing. uh, Oh yeah. 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 You know, that stuff. It's good thing you reinvented yourself now. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, as mentioned in my bio, I joined football for a year, full contact football. And while I would never not do it. I think I could have gone around doing it better. I um, thought highly of myself, for lack of a better term. I was quite egotistical. And um, football was a humbling experience, but at the same time, I could have done it better. And I think I got a really good reality check when I moved to Hawaii and I saw all those big Samoan guys, like six foot eight, yeah. 300 yeah. pounds, yeah. Nice, nice as anything, but would crush me. And I just had a good reset button, a good smack in the face reality check to realize that I need to change who I am in order to fit in not only with society, but with who I want to be. What was your position in football? Were you a big defensive tackle trying to go against the Simone guys? (laughs) What did they have you playing? (laughs) I was a defensive end. Were you really? Yeah. So you really had to go against the biggest kid on the team. That's hilarious. So how did that work going against a big Samoan left tackle? How did that all work out for you? It didn't. It didn't. Yeah. Did they do a lot of running plays in your direction? Just pancake you every time? Was that Um, kind of their game plan? Well, (laughs) 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 yeah, there were a couple of instances where I did get laid out. I think it was my Uh first game. Dad went to come and see me and I just got decked and he was just about ready to leave. (laughs) Charlie, you didn't want to take the field. You you were like, okay, that's it. I'm suiting up. I'm I'm done with this. Emily, Emily was a large child when she was young, Chris. Uh, she was big and she was strong and she was bigger than the boys uh, up to about 13. So she wow. came home one day and she told us, she said, hey, I want to play football. Uh, the, the Junior Black Knights is the team here at West Point. They play a local league, all the, the other rec leagues. And I talked to Lil about it and you know, we're worried about her because she's, she's our little girl, even though she wasn't yeah. little when she was 13, Right, right. but we're not going to stop her from doing something that she, she can do. So she played and her coach, the head coach was amazing. Uh, we should have him on the show one day. His name's Mike, Mike Rutledge. And he was a SEAL before he became a pilot for the 160th. And he was a superintendent's wow. pilot here at West Point. And he was a coach and his son was on the team and just really, I'm sure at some point he'll get it really at some point he'll get his life together. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, Mike's Mike's an overachiever. He's he's a great dude. Really, really good. Dude. He used to live just up the street from us, and that was a great experience for Emily uh, because of the discipline, and she got stronger. But you know, the boys kept growing, and she didn't. And we had sure. to have a conversation with her when we got to Hawaii. And like, look, baby, you're 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 no longer the biggest kid on the team. 
and your and your skills aren't good enough to compete around the the weight the weight offset. Right. And she right. she took it very professionally. She's like, you know what, you're right. So I'm going to be a swimmer instead. So that's what she's doing now. That's awesome. So and talk to me about about the military then. So obviously the military's had a huge impact on your life because you've had to move with the army. Would you say you are in the majority of kids raised in the military and are not resentful about it? Or is that the minority opinion? Is it more often that kids just go, Hey, screw this, man. I've seen what this did to my parents and, and how much I had to move. And and it was fine, even if I survived it or even thrived in it, but there's no way I would ever repeat this or inflict this on my family. I think it's pretty evenly distributed because I know that um, even within just my friend group, we're pretty split evenly. Like um, a lot of my girlfriends want to join the military and a lot of my guy friends want to join the military too. And then some of my other girlfriends and guy friends are just like, you know, screw this. This sucks. I would never want to move. It tore my parents apart. I can't speak to my older siblings. Um, There are really some awful things that can come along with the, the military. There's the emotional baggage and I know I would have been completely destroyed if something had happened to dad when he was deployed those so many times overseas and um, just a lot of psychological things that like if he had gotten uh, severe PTSD and brought it home with us sure. in the family and that could have really harmed our relationship. But I thank God that everything for us at least has turned out okay and um yeah, the future is looking bright. So I think that, that I will definitely try for myself. That's awesome. Charlie, that, that, I mean, there's questions I think that people get a lot out of, out of you explaining. So obviously you were with JSOC and then if I remember right, you went from JSOC to West Point, right? Am I right? So I, yeah, I, I had a, I had some grad, a grad school detour. They sent me to the okay. National Defense Intelligence College and then, and then to Yale, but yeah. So how much of that, how much of that trajectory leaving JSOC and moving on was determined by career ambition or by family concerns, or did they both just happen to marry up and it all worked out? So uh, I don't know if I mentioned this in the first show, but I, I was concerned about the way the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were going. So in JSOC under first general McChrystal and then Admiral McRaven, uh, I, you know, I was an Intel guy. I was an operator. I, I never went out on the objective. It wasn't my job. I was helping the good guys find the objective. So, but I, I got exposed to a lot while I was over there just by virtue of the jobs. Sure. And I became concerned that it seemed like some of our, our politicians back home had a vested interest in us not winning, especially in Iraq, because they kind of pinned their careers on it. And I was seeing friends of mine going out every night, risking their lives. I was seeing Iraqis getting getting blown up all the time, bad guys, sometimes good guys, et cetera. So I, I just gave a really hard look at it. It's like, what can I do about this problem? I'll, as an intel officer, I'll never be in charge of these formations out there. That's combat arms jobs, and that's that's for good, very good reasons. But what can I do? Well, I could go to West Point and and try to set the stage for these young minds uh, to not make the mistakes I see West Pointers and and others making in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that's why I got out and did it. And it was hard, Chris. I love JSOC. My dad was in JSOC. My best friend's father was JSOC. My wife was in JSOC. Hopefully one day Emily will be in JSOC. In my opinion, there's no better. Or she is now. And we don't even know. Right. (laughs) Entirely possible. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not an operator, but my 17 year old daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she she might have, 
she might have felt like an operator doing the long march uh, two weeks ago when she did the 19-mile Norwegian foot march. I, I think I should let her tell you about that real quick, Chris, before we move on. Yeah. Did, did, did the weight uh, – are you, are you smaller now than when I saw you before him? Did the weight just kind of bog you down, dropped a couple inches? Yeah, I might have dropped a couple <laughs> inches down with my ego. <laughs> so, so. Go uh, tell, tell Chris about, uh, about what the Norwegian foot march is because he might not know or our audience might not. So the Norwegian foot march, um, per name, is a foot march that the Norwegians started. And then um, Americans were like, cool, we should do that too. And so they brought it here. God knows why. And um, it's 18.86 miles or 30 kilometers. And because of the way that West Point is, we had to start at a certain point and then go around main West Point post three times. And it was a hell of a march. It was god awful why is it 30 kilometers what's the significance of 30 kilometers or i couldn't is there tell you i think it's the, the norwegians just hate life and want to share that hatred with all of us awesome hopefully you work for the state department in diplomatic relations <laughs> because clearly yeah just go ahead and offend our, our scandinavian allies that'll be awesome no i'm totally messing with you. yeah um no i mean I, I um charlie do you know do you know why it's 30 kilometers that was just their arbitrary distance, okay. 30 K. And, and Chris, you remember, uh, you know, 12 is normally what, what we do sure. um, in the American 12 at a 15 minute pace. And you also know what the hills are like around here. So that's yeah. a real gut check to do 19 miles at sub 15 minutes when you're not trained up for, it, especially when you're, you're 17. No. Um, but Emily, actually, I think she finished in front of me. I'm not sure. Uh, Cause we got separated during the March. And the, the other interesting thing about it is you have to do this at night. So uh, we stepped off at 2330 and uh, we, we got done with everything. I think we were in the car at, at 0530 after we got everything checked in. But it was such a great experience to see the cadets out there getting after it. And, and my boss, I'm not going to say his name. Uh, my boss was out on the side of the road at, at midnight um, in front of his house playing music, throwing Mike and Ikes at people and, and, and encourage him to go. It was, it was a great event, but I'll tell you, there was some soul searching and, and also uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm never, I'm never doing that again. I'm, I'm too old for this, Chris. Well, so, so the stipulations of, the, of what makes it a Norwegian ruck March is it's at night, it's 30 kilometers and what else, or is that it? So, so um, 25 pounds, so not a lot of weight. Do you, you have to learn, learn any Norwegian? Let me just stipulate. Is that at all part of it? I think I think this sucks. What am I doing is universal. I, I think uh, there are Norwegians okay. who understand it. So <laughs> normally, normally a Norwegian representative has to be here because of COVID and because of the longstanding relationship with West Point. They've allowed actually a cadet. Uh, his first name's Nick. I'm not going to say his last name either. But Nick organized this for the core cadets and allowed dependents and and active duty members and you know anybody who wanted to to come out and do it. And uh, I, I think it was a great event and great on this cadet for organizing this thing that's so big and complex, Chris. So let's circle back to the to the military child aspect of this. That's a that's a thing. That's an that's something that kids just won't get to do. You know, that's something that you. So it gives you this appreciation not just for the military, but let's be honest for for international relations that a lot of kids. I mean, how many people are doing you know learning about Norway and Norwegian ruck marches and all that at your age, right? Yeah, I would say very few, if any. Right, right. I mean, it, um, so I let me th- throw one other aspect out there because it's something I think that drives, seems like every conversation about youth now. Social media as a military child, 
Does it help? Does it hurt? Does it make you inherently skeptical because you have parents that are kind of hip to the bad juju in the world and you go, you know something, I don't really, I don't need to be part of this. Like how much does it make you grow up um, or be more immature than you should coming from that military background? It depends on who your parents are because like um, my parents are pretty conservative when it comes to like politics and stuff and just in general. So um, I like being on social media occasionally, but I don't have a That's all right. I lost you there, I think, for a second. Good now? Sorry. For some reason, my camera went out too. Yeah. I think we're, I think we're getting pulsed energy shot towards uh, this podcast and because my camera went out for some reason that I, I don't know, which obviously to our listeners won't matter, but, um, <laughs> Emily and Charlie are now no longer able to see me in my Unabomber look. Um, so they're much more relaxed than they were for the first 45 minutes. So sorry, you were saying, so keep going with that, with the social media stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't have a lot of social media, which I'm thankful for because I feel like it can like make or break you. Um, a lot of my friends are on social media and they spend a lot of time on like TikTok and Snapchat and stuff, just mindlessly surfing through stuff. And I don't really see the point of it when there's so much to do around here. So I feel like social media in just like the mindless aspect just isn't really for me. And I feel like having people in the military and being able to appreciate the things that are around me when I have them is really good because I'll always have like regrets about not doing things in the places that I've lived, but I won't have as many regrets because I've not spent all my time tucked away in my room on my phone, on my computer, just going through things that don't really concern me. So I, uh, this is, I don't think this is apocryphal. I just can't remember the details of it, but I think it was like five or six years ago, there was some Gallup poll or something like that. I'll try to put it in the show notes if I can track it down, but it, they pulled high school kids and they said, um, what do you want to be? And the number one answer was famous, which isn't necessarily an occupation. Although I take it back now it is because social media influencer is now a thing. So for you, I mean, now we're a couple of years down the road from that poll. Where does that rank for you and how has being growing up on bases, how does that impact it? I could see in my mind, I could see two different courses of action. One, you completely reject the fame thing because you're like, screw that. That's a shallow end of the pool. I, I, I know too much to be to be that that uh, taken with it or to go screw this. I am so sick of the military stuff that, hey, you know something? Fame, give me attention. You know, I want to go the other way. I have a feeling I know which way you lean, but what do you think about the military uh, and and its impact with that and how kids that are raised in military families deal with the, that, that allure of fame that you can, you can find on social media? Yeah, I feel like it can swing either way. Um, Contrary to all the jokes that I might make, I have been loved as a child And so I feel like I don't need to be an attention whore and just like beg for attention through fame. But there are some people who have grown up in some not so good military households who have been deprived of affection and love and feel like fame is the way to get it. And um, I I don't think that they would find comfort in the fame because while a lot of people who do follow celebrities really do love the people and like encourage them and stuff, it's not real honest to God love that you would find with your brothers in the military or in any occupation that you might have. So I think that fame for the most part is pretty shallow and what the military offers, while it's not fame and it's not usually fun and it can be hard and difficult at times, it's much better. 
Yeah, it's funny. I was, I was talking about this with um, my mother-in-law the, the other week. Um, that influence, one's influence in life can be measured in two ways. It can either be measured by breadth or by depth. And, you know, you do a movie, if you're George Clooney or something, you have a broad spectrum of a broad range of influence. You don't necessarily have a deep amount of influence. Uh, you know, people aren't necessarily walking around going, my whole life has been governed by Ocean's Eleven. You know, um, that's not usually a thing. But whereas people that we may never know, the three of us will never know their names, but they run a teen center or they were an outstanding teacher. They Not many people will ever know, not very much breadth of influence, but a real depth of influence where for 40 years they were influencing a generation, you know, that was around them and influencing all the people that knew them. I think that's, um, I, I think I, I like, I, I like that construct only because I think it can be helpful when people are in a quest for fame to go, well, where do you really want your impact to be? Do you want it to be among the people that know you or that you encounter in your life? Or do you want it to be among strangers? Yeah, definitely. I think that having, um, more depth to your influence is much better than having the breadth because with depth you can reach people and change their minds and help them through things. And just breadth just means that you have more influence, but it doesn't really mean much. Also fame sucks. Who wants fame? Like, especially now you're going to be targeted by pulsing magnet uh, microwave energy. You don't want that. You don't want people knowing who you are, where you live, tracking you down. Who wants fame? I, I remember somebody said that about Tom Cruise. They were like, yeah, you know, he lives his whole life in like a hotel and then has to go to like his compound with his private security and all that. I'm like, why, why do people want to be famous? I mean, rich, powerful. I could see the, the lure there. Why in God's name would you want to be famous? I, I, I don't know. That's just my ramblings on that. Charlie, Charlie's already achieved a level of fame that he can't relate anymore to the, to the little people. But uh, have, he's, he's just drunk on, on that Havoc Journal uh, platform, you know, and, and, and now has, has achieved that, that goal in life. Right, Charlie? Well, you're the only one that will have me on the show, you and Jim Gio Garcia. <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure how, much, how, how famous I am. More like infamous. Fair enough. All right, guys. Um, we could obviously do more as we always could. Um, we'll call it there because um, I've kept you guys for long enough. This was awesome. And this was really cool. I'm glad you could come on. Once again, thanks for having me. I had a blast. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, we'll do it again at some point. Charlie, also, thank you. And thanks for suggesting that uh, Emily come on. Yeah, I appreciate you having her on the show. Uh, hopefully we can get her back on, talk about some topics. She's got some good depth of knowledge on versus uh, UFOs and scary Iranians. Um, but I also, before we before I sign off, and maybe this doesn't even make the, the cut uh, sure. when we do the editing, but I, I kind of got a laugh out of, you mentioned uh, talking about maturity earlier, and you and I were cracking jokes about Djibouti before the show started. So uh, <laughs> I don't know who the mature one is on the show today. <laughs> Well, I'm just I'm just glad it wasn't. I'm just glad I walked into it because usually I <laughs> nobody calls it out, and I have this vision of cars crashing as they're listening to the podcast as they go. How did you guys let that happen? You know. And um, anyway, so yeah, no, I'm well, glad I got called out. We got we got we maximized I'm, the opportunity. I'm just worried about what's going to happen when Emily's mom and her grandmother uh, listen to the show. So uh, if I don't if I, if I'm put on restriction and can't come on the show for a while, you know what happened? Yeah. yeah no. Sorry, mom. Yeah, I know. Can I get any faint on this show in the near future? I'm just hitting Charlie up on Facebook. You want to come on? Got no response. All right, guys, you rock. Thank you. Um, Charlie, in just in, in closing, anything you want to throw out there about second mission? 
This yeah, week. so I, re- I recently had a, a – just today, actually. I, I know this will be a couple days later when this actually airs. I've talked with Daniel Sharp on Pop Smoke about a project that he wants to do for vets. Uh, I'll go into more detail next time I'm on the show. Okay. But really excited about that. Second Mission really blowing up, helping vets get their books made and their stories out there. So really looking forward to, to talking to you more about that uh, in, in the coming episodes, Chris. Outstanding. That'll be awesome. I mean, yeah, that's I, – I think we, we – the, the passion the vets have for writing and the fact that there's platforms now dedicated to it is awesome. And second mission, um, yeah, the work that you're doing is just incredible. Um, and I know everybody associated is really grateful that you're there and that you're doing this and thinking of this. Um, Emily, I didn't ask you this before, but is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want to throw out the Highland Falls podcasting club? Anything that we want to give a shout out to? Shout out to the um, James I. O'Neill podcasting club. We aren't big and um, we are very neglectful sometimes of our podcasts, but if you can find us, then listen to us. <laughs> there we go. The burden is on you as listeners. Go ahead and find it. If you're motivated, then uh, you'll figure out where they're at. Okay. Uh, for my part, again, I'm going to harp on this again because I, I do think it's important. If you're against racism, but you're not sold on critical race theory and the racism being taught in the name of anti-racism, fair. The Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. It's. I, I hope that people go to their website. I hope they look them up. I'll have it in the show notes. Um, it's something I'm passionate about. I'm not associated with it in any way, I. Uh, but for lack of anything better to talk about, I do want to give them a plug because I think especially veterans and people in the military need to have alternatives to this anti-racism grift. And I'm using that word uh, advisedly, but I, I feel incredibly strongly about it. The only point I'll make on this that I haven't made previously when I plugged fair is that I think people like Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, who no one had ever heard of until there was a way to monetize uh, race in, in the last couple of years uh, could use a counterbalance. And that counterbalance comes from the people at FAIR, people that have long track records of intellectual history, have been published for years talking about critical thought, um, the Enlightenment principles, open debate, people like Steven Pinker, Barry Weiss, who is the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, Coleman Hughes, John McWhorter, Glenn Lowry, Camille Foster, Ion Hersey Ali, and that woman, what she has been through and the inspiration she should be to Americans, I, I just can't overstate enough. And I'll talk about that, I'm sure, at some point more in depth, maybe even make it the subject of one of our episodes. So in the face of this kind of shallow um, racism that is being peddled in the name of anti-racism, I humbly submit FAIR as a reasonable alternative that people that want to fight racism but don't want to just uh, encourage more racism in their dialogue and in their strategies would do well to look into FAIR. So that's my plug. Charlie and Emily, thank you guys for being here again. This was a blast. Uh, we will do it again, obviously, very soon. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Talk to you again soon, brother. Absolutely. So to all of you listening, please, if you haven't already subscribe, if you're on iTunes, leave us a note, let us know how we're doing. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. If you could attach a five-star review to those comments, be they good, bad, or ugly, that would be great. I'd appreciate it. The metrics do matter, but also you guys matter and your, your feedback matters. So please let me know what you like and what you don't like. Um, I'm always interested to find out how we're doing in your ears. I would say your eyes, but obviously you don't see us. 
The show notes, there will be show notes. They will be on the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, that's the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com or through my own channel at Savage Wonder, which is savagewonder.substack.com. Uh, we'll have show notes there. I will also have alibis for anything I misstated. As Charlie and I pointed out repeatedly, I have a unique gift for throwing a double entendre out there or saying something else that complete, com- can be completely misinterpreted. So instead of me waking up in a cold sweat at two in the morning and going, why the hell did I say it? And why did I say it like that? Um, I try to write them into alibis that cover my ass uh, in case anyone is deeply offended or took things the wrong way or just thinks I can't make sense without making a double entendre. So please look those up as well. Those will be at the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Emily and Charlie Faint. We will see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. I'm I'm still really ticked that I uh, missed out on getting uh, the French commando course in Djibouti. I was like a week away from being able to get there and I couldn't get back in time to take it. And I was like, oh, that would have been awesome to get. I forget what it was that they gave, but it was like, I think I think you even got like a ceremonial Kepi Blanc, like a Legionnaire Kepi Blanc that you could wear on your head and, uh, and like a little French commando tab just ceremonially that you couldn't wear on anything, but it was kind of cool. Oh, well, I'm really sorry to hear that you couldn't take it in Djibouti, so sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> See? There we go, and there's our Easter egg.